0: Head to my website, simonmundy.com, or Amazon, Waterstone, Smith's, places like that, to get your copy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. Each week, I speak to renowned thinkers, philosophers, psychologists, scientists, sports people and the like to explore something important about life and how best to live it. And together, we do try and answer some of life's bigger questions. This week's conversation is with Professor Shane O'Mara, a neuroscientist of the very top order, who is Professor of Experimental Brain Research at Trinity College, Dublin. We talk about lots in this episode, including the difference between the narrative self, that's the story of me made up of memories, beliefs and the like, and the experiencing or aware self that is fully and continually engaged with the present moment. For example, it is whatever is hearing these words right now. Now, most people tend to identify with the former over the latter, but we question the wisdom of that. Shane also explains how countries are created by conversations and are basically ideas rather than real entities. And I suggest that on that basis, perhaps it might be evolved to take the ideas of nationhood seriously, but not quite so literally, if it allows us to recognise the shared humanity of, of everyone everywhere. And Shane shares some tools, techniques, and proven approaches to use conversations skillfully to bridge gaps, break down walls, and dissolve that propensity some have to dehumanise people from different mental tribes and treat them like the other. Professor Shane O'Mara, what an absolute pleasure to see you again. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Simon. How are you? I'm very good. This is your second appearance on the podcast, And last time you came on, we discussed your blockbuster of a book, In Praise of Walking, which I've got to tell you, by the way, is my next door neighbor's favorite episode. And I've done over 200 episodes. He sends it out to many, many people. So it's great to see you again because I enjoyed that episode so much. So Before we get on to your new book, I thought if you had to summarize In Praise of
1: Walking in a sentence beyond just walk more, what would you say? I I would say much what I said before, uh walking allows you the or affords you the the opportunity to holistically experience life in a way that you can't uh on a bicycle or in a car or anywhere else. The the randomness and the beauty of life appear to you when you're on foot in ways that they just do not appear uh when you're traveling elsewhere at speed.
0: Good for creativity too, I remember. That stuck with me.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's good for Every aspect of your being. Um, So I I would recommend it uh, as the leisure activity you should try for every day. (laughs) We have to take it away from the hikers. It's not something for the third weekend of the month. It's something that you should be doing every day.
0: Indeed. But we're not here to talk about walking. We're here to talk about talking. You've applied your fierce intellect to conversation, to memory and the role that it plays in human civilization. I've got it here. There it is. But as well, it's, it's thoughts as well about how conversation and memory can serve us better going forward. And we're going to cover all of that. But I want to start with the fascinating chap that you talk about at the start of the book. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's pronounced Henry Molaison.
1: Uh There are, uh, you get various pronunciations. Malayson is one, Malayson is another. It's it's a, a Cajun name. His, his his father's side of his family uh, are from Louisiana, uh, and I believe his mother Uh, was from Canada, but he was brought up in the US.
0: So he is a fascinating character with a compelling story. So rather than try and explain it, would you mind talking about who he was, what happened to him and what effect he had on medical understanding?
1: H.M. is the name that we knew him by or the initials we knew him by uh, until uh, he died and then uh, his name was released uh, post his death, and, uh, which is a, a, a common practice in the, the medical literature to preserve uh, patients' uh, privacy. So the, the long story short with uh, Henry is, is straightforward. He may or may not have suffered an accident, and the medical records aren't clear about this, um, which goes to the kind of idea already of how we have to reconstruct events rather than we can just know what happened. And some years after this accident, which may or may not have happened, uh, he started to suffer uh, really uh, uh, crippling bouts of epilepsy, Um, uh, really uh, very, very deep grand mal seizures uh, occurring many, many times a day. And uh, and a number of investigations were performed. And uh, in his case, it was determined using the, the methods of the time that it looked most likely that a part of the brain known as the hippocampal formation was at fault, that this was damaged. And uh, his surgeon, uh, William Scoville, suggested that we they, perhaps the route forward was to remove this structure from his brain. And so far as was known at the time, this part of the brain really was a silent kind of part of the brain. It might have had a role in smell. Uh, maybe one or two other roles to do with the control of emotion. But it, really, it was regarded as not being terribly interesting. And uh, it was removed. And uh, he gave, of course, consent to do it. And his family did as well. And lo and behold, uh, a, a strange miracle occurred. Um, his epilepsy stopped, more or less. Uh, he he went from, I think, having tens of fits a day to ha- perhaps having maybe one a year or, or even less frequently than that. Um, But in the weeks after the operation, something strange became apparent about him that uh, he could not remember from day to day what had happened, even from moment to moment, what was happening to him. Uh, Now, his IQ was normal. His working memory was normal. By that, I mean, if you gave him a telephone number to repeat uh, to himself, he could do that very, very well. Um, uh, If you introduced him to somebody, he would remember who that person was for the period he was with them. But once he was interrupted, uh, the kind of normal updating of memory ha- that would happen ceased. So he, he uh, had uh, one of the purest cases of amnesia that's ever been described in the the literature, and uh, it happened at a time when interest in understanding how memory uh, and its it, its functions. Uh, was building both within psychology and neuroscience. So a a really astonishing story. And his case didn't resolve for more than 50 years. So he lived in this perpetual present tense uh, for that half century or more, which is, when you think about it, quite breathtaking.
0: Absolutely. So a couple of just quick fire questions. Whereabouts in the brain is the hippocampal formation? When did the operation take place? And how old was he at the time? He was like 27, wasn't he?
1: Yeah. And uh, so the hippocampus runs, or the hippocampal formation, from the tip of the ear to the temple. It's about two centimeters in, and it's about the length of your middle finger. Uh, And it's a little bit larger than your middle finger. You have two of them, one on either side of the brain. And it's a structure that we refer to as being a conserved structure because uh, you find it in rats, you find it in monkeys you find it in squirrels you find it even in birds you know the it, it it's a structure that appears across uh, all of the vertebrates that are that are known in some shape or form um the surgery as as you've already said was was performed on, on him when he was in his 20s and he went on to die i think at the age of 74 so about he had about 50 years uh Uh, in this condition he had a a small injury to one of his frontal lobes as well but uh, that doesn't seem to be something that we need to be overly concerned about the other patients with that very small type of injury don't have this uh, deficit in uh, memory that he showed
0: And his impact on medicine and the understanding of the brain was almost unparalleled.
1: Yeah, it was absolutely incalculable. So we had known uh, probably since the 1870s, there was a a great and sometimes forgotten uh, British neurologist named Lawson, who described a series of amnestic cases in the 1870s, 1880s. Sergei Korsakov in in, uh, Russia described a series of cases in the, the early 1900s. Um, but, uh, they didn't pin down where the damage was, um, and the damage in these cases probably arose from alcoholism. Um, and as, as, as it turns out, memory is complicated. So damage to the hippocampal formation causes this grave amnesia. And the cases described by Lawson and Korsakov, uh, actually are to a connected part of the hippocampus, another structure which is quite large and also found in other other species called the anterior thalamus. And what we now know is that the interaction uh, of the activity in the hippocampus and the anterior thalamus intersecting with the outer surface of the brain, the cortex, is actually how memory is laid down. That uh, it's this complex tripartite arrangement of brain structures that talk to each other. And if you damage the hippocampus, you will lose long-term memory. Uh, If you damage the anterior thalamus, you will also, and if you damage parts of the cortex, you will also lose memory as well. So memory, as it turns out, is not a simple thing.
0: I read an article, I think it was in The Guardian, about Henry. I was really interested in his story after reading about him in your book. And the writer of this article spoke about him as this really tragic case, as you say, locked in the present moment, and who would ever want to have a life like his? However, she also noted that you know he was not sad, he was not depressed, and I've heard you describe him as, as genial and affable. Now, is that true? Is he remembered as being someone who his experience of life was not a sad one?
1: No, his experience of life was not a sad one, you see. So I, I worry about people trying to paint the complexity of an individual's experience like that as tragic yes to the outsider it is tragic um but from his point of view uh you know he was aware that he had a deficit with memory but he was not a sad person um he, he didn't go through his life bemoaning the the uh deficit that had befallen him um people who interacted with him i, I never met him personally but I've, I've met people who who worked with him. they all said the same thing that he was actually a very nice person he was very easy to get on with and and you know perversely you could argue that actually his life was happy because he didn't have a record of all of the horrible stuff that goes on in the world that uh, you know he, memory for him stopped when he was 27 which is probably maybe not a bad age to uh, have things stop at now i'm not trying to be flippant here but i, I do think it, you know trying to sum up the complexity of an individual's life, especially somebody like Henry, who has gone on, you know, because of what happened to him, the contribution that he made to the course of science was, is and was incalculable. Now, I don't know how you weigh these things up. I I, I, I don't think one can really. I think they're incommensurable. But uh, we've ended up, because of his case, discovering things that we otherwise would not have discovered.
0: So his life essentially was largely joyful and he left a fantastic legacy. I mean, actually that in many ways is what, what we seek out of life. And I think that I appreciate you saying that you know, it's simplistic to say that he's just this tragic case because I was reflecting and thinking, obviously he doesn't have this narrative sense of self, as you say, it sort of stopped at 27. So he's he's very present, but there are a lot of people, for example, who would say, oh, I'd hate to be like that. And yet who are Overly weighed down by their narrative sense of self. That story of me who are so identified with, oh, this happened to me, that happened to me, and aren't I unlucky? And the story that can be like pessimistic. And so it made me think that some people who are identified with that story actually perhaps there's something to learn from Henry. There's a bit of a middle ground being utterly present. Perhaps we wouldn't choose that, but equally being overly identified and overly lost in the story of me, which is just a load of interlinked thoughts, can be far more distressing.
1: Well, you see, you know, when you think about it, there's a kind of a, a, a I suppose, a, an almost perverse way of looking at, at Henry's case. That uh, He is the exemplar of uh, people who teach f- uh, mindfulness. That uh, You should exist in the present moment, not attend to the past and not be focused uh, on the future. Uh, and literally, that's all he was capable of doing um and uh, i i think your point is well made that actually people you know you, when when you look at people who have anxiety problems for as a for instance uh, their thought is very colored by thinking about the terrible things that might happen what might be uh the anticipation of of some future malign event in their lives that uh, they then bring backwards from the, the future into the present. And that colors the way they think about the world. In other words, they're worriers. They, they, they worry enormously about things that might be beyond their control. Um, and I don't think Henry worried at all, um, but, you know, his, his story is, is full of paradoxes. And one of, one of the kind of paradoxes is that when you, you are in this state where you are entirely present centered, uh Your life ends up becoming one uh where you're in the care of others yeah you have to be because you're not able to think about well, I must buy the groceries for the following week i I have to go to work tomorrow. I have to do all of the things that make uh living of a normal life possible. Other people have to provide that scaffold for you because you do not have the ability to provide it for yourself,
0: yes, sure, as you say it's a paradox right it's It might be a stress-free existence, but it's one where you're entirely dependent. You mentioned mindfulness in this instruction to remain in the present, but just a slight adjustment I would suggest would be it's about experientially being in the present and using memory and anticipation as a tool rather than getting lost in it. And we'll get onto that because I think that you allude to this in various other parts of the book. And that does happen to a lot of people these days, isn't it? They are so identified with this story of me that actually they're almost the opposite of Henry. You know, I do think there's something in that for this time in particular is worth looking at.
1: If you recall in the walking book, I make the argument that uh, one of the the beauties of going for a walk is that you can strive for a mindless state where uh, you're not really present at all. uh, And uh, uh, on a good walk, uh, you can place yourself in a position relative to the universe where you actually scale yourself in the you know <laughs> in, in terms of where you are as a person and that change in perspective can be i think very very valuable uh, that uh, what's gnawing at you and eating at you is actually you know relatively speaking not such a deal practically speaking you might have to you know pay the electricity bills and all the rest of it but uh, uh, relatively speaking these things will pass <laughs>
0: Well, absolutely. And I think that's such a, a, a valuable thing to point out. Yeah. When you go outside and you think about the, the size of the galaxy, let alone the universe, and then put the narrative story we have about ourselves up against that, you realize just how inconsequential it is and how unnecessarily we get caught up in that. So can we then just explain, you touched on it briefly that how memory is fundamental in being able to plan the future, which is something that Henry couldn't do, which is why everyone had to look after him.
1: Yeah, so that, is, that I think, is, is really kind of the, the paradox at the heart of, of understanding what memory is about. We have this kind of idea that memory is retrospective. It allows us to look backwards. But actually, when you analyse the contents of people th- people's thoughts um, by pinging them at varieties of times during the day and you ask them, well, are you thinking about the past? Are you thinking about the present? Are you thinking about the future? Uh, what you find is that people's thoughts are mostly present-oriented and they're mostly future-oriented. So that begs the question: Why do we have this amazing capacity to remember things? And the answer has to be that we have this amazing capacity for memory. We can recall all sorts of things. If I ask you what color's your front door, boom, you can tell me. Uh, you can tell me how many bedrooms are in your house. Uh, you can tell me how many kids you have. <laughs> you know, all of all, of the... you can tell me where you went to school. All of that kind of stuff. Um, but what we see when we look at somebody like Henry or patients like Henry and we analyze the content of their thought, it's not backward looking and it's not forward looking. It's, they're stuck in the present. Um, and that actually is a kind of an important clue about why we have memories. In the absence of an ability to recall the past, you're not able to imagine an alternate future so you know think about you know for example a plan to go on holidays next year i I use this example in the book you might have gone on some terrible holidays to uh windswept caravan park in skegness maybe (laughs) or somewhere and you may have had some wonderful holidays under the tuscan sun and uh, when you think about where you're going to go you know you, you revisit those past events but you're thinking about something that hasn't happened yet you're thinking about next june next july next august um and you're doing that with somebody so you're drawing on a pool of memories that you have together and if you don't have those memories together one tells the other in conversation well I had this holiday in Lucca in Tuscany and it was absolutely fabulous Um, and uh, the other says well I was in Via Reggio and that was wonderful so can we do the two together so suddenly you have this kind of process of drawing information from the past informing each other updating each other's memories together to plan for something that may not happen because, of course, an asteroid might strike the Earth <laughs> in, in January and uh, or a pandemic might occur and all bets are off. But uh, people with Henry syndrome can't do this. Next week is going to be the same as this week, uh, which will have been the same as last week. Next year, the year after, they will all be pretty much identical. Um, and it's this ability to engage in kind of... Uh, memory-driven imagination especially together and especially in the context of conversation that having this astonishing memory system in our brain allows us to do
0: so memory isn't this a luxury that enables us to just remember pleasant events it's absolutely foundational in terms of being able to create a future and civilization
1: yeah to plan our plan what we will do to anticipate to think through the consequences of our actions you need a, a really well stocked memory store uh, or you won't be able uh to uh, to do these things and you know if you, if you think about the push the counterfactual with henry a little bit further imagine a group of five or six or 10 Henrys uh together and you say to them plan something together that's going to be impossible for them uh because They can't update what each other knows from the evidence that they have in in their individual memories, and they can't imagine together what it is that they will want to do at some point in time. Now, this might be something very simple, like we want to train together as a football team, or it could be complicated. You know, we want to build a building. We want to construct something together. That's where it starts to go wrong.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm reminded of I think Daniel Kahneman and various other people have spoken about like having two minds essentially you know the the thinking mind which obviously encapsulates the memory and then more of an experiential aware mind which is that part of us that's present and so Henry's aware mind was working fine there was nothing wrong with that but that thinking part the memory part was gone people tend to identify more don't they with the the part of us that has the memory that's where we find our identity more than the part of us that is actually more f- fundamental
1: that's doing the experiencing <laughs> I, I yeah Kahneman has this line about being his uh remembering self and his experiencing self as a stranger, so it's almost like you've got two people in one head, and we we misperceive the experiencing self as our authentic self, but actually what we're to get through life we depend entirely on what our remembering self allows us to do.
0: Well, it's a tool then to navigate life to a degree. Absolutely. So we can come to that. But part of the book that I found absolutely fascinating was how you then took what we've been speaking about and applied it to countries and nations and state building in particular. And patriotism is seen as this, this great thing and nationalism even has risen in recent years and many times throughout history. And yet you point out that countries start out as little more than a conversation. So they start out as a thought and then you and I have a conversation and here we are X years down the line saying, keep people out, don't let people in, that kind of stuff. So I think that's a really interesting way to look at countries.
1: So I'll tell you a story about this book as I was writing it. Uh, I was out for a walk with a a friend of mine, as as I do, and uh, he said to me, uh, I've been reading this really interesting book uh, by uh, Benedict Anderson, who uh, is sadly deceased now, but it was a, he was an Irish, Anglo-Irish uh, political scientist um, uh, who lived most of his life in the US. And uh, what uh, Anderson did, uh, among other things, was was to consider uh, the issue of how uh, we bring countries into being, and his answer was that it's impossible for us to know all of the people in our country. So the UK has a population of whatever, 65, 66 million. Uh, it, it will never be possible for you uh, to know everybody in your country, let alone in your town or in your city. So his answer was that uh, people uh, have to, we populate our countries using imagination as our as the vehicle and that what we do is imagine a community together. And uh, he he goes through a variety of arguments from a kind of a humanistic uh, point of view to do with the book uh, being available, maps being available, these things that can set boundaries to uh, the limits of a nation. And kind of the argument that I I make is is a counterpart to Anderson's uh, argument that, yes, indeed, our communities are imagined because we can't know everybody in them even though we, we might be willing to fight and die for our communities, uh, we're doing it for people that we don't know. Uh, and the question then you're confronted with is how is that possible? And Anderson is completely silent on this topic. Uh, he, 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 he focuses really on understanding it from a, a humanistic and, and political science point of view. But as it turns out, we now know that uh, uh, from the discussion we've just had, that the exercise of imagination, is dependent on particular structures in the brain that are also the same structures that are involved in memory. These two things uh, collapse into each other and perform by the same brain region. So the argument I make is, is one that says that we have brains that are designed to allow us to do this and other species don't. Uh, so uh, a troop of chimpanzees will never ever sit down and st- say together we will conquer this area of the jungle chimps are too violent um they're they're about 30 times as violent to each other as humans are uh, chimps skeletons usually have bite marks and scratch marks and broken bones um bonobos uh or sorry orangutans are uh, another good example they're very solitary uh, uh, primates were related to to both of them uh, Uh, reasonably closely and we occupy this kind of interesting cognitive sweet spot where we can work together exercise our collective imaginations together how we do this through conversation (laughs) through talking Uh, we tell each other stuff we reason together and we put our faith in the group that we are part of uh, because we know ourselves our memory might be faulty our judgment might be a little bit off so we we give ourselves over to group deliberations all the time. You know, we do this in juries, uh, in in courtrooms. Uh, We do this by electing politicians who sit in deliberative assemblies. We have boards for companies. Uh, There are all sorts of ways in which we make these judgments together. And coming back to the issue of of countries, um, you know, when you look at the, the political science literature and lots of other literatures, it's actually a little bit difficult to try and understand how it is that a country can come into being, uh, or how countries can disappear, um, and countries come and go, uh, you know, uh, Czechoslovakia is no more, uh, it's now uh, Czechia and Slovakia, and they they seem to have taken two very different paths politically. Um, the united thirty
0: Ca- sorry just quickly 30 countries since 1990
1: isn't it? It, it approximately that number uh which is astonishing you know south sudan i think being the one that most recently uh recognized and they run the full gamut from you know a microstate like uh san marino uh, which you can walk around in the in the course of a day or the vatican uh in the course of a day all the way up to vast countries like russia uh or canada or, or uh, australia so they they really are uh, these are amazing things, but they're not permanent. Uh, they're not given to us by uh, commandments from on high. They are things that we will into being and they are things that we can will out of being and we do that <laughs> um, and have done that and we will continue uh, to do that. But the peculiar thing is that these creatures or these things are constructs of our imagination and we want other people in other places to recognize them for that. So, you know, uh, all over the world, um, maybe not so many now, but, you know, we had the famous age of revolution uh, for a hundred or more years where uh, uh, revolutionary groups were attempting to establish control of countries. But it was a very important factor for them to ensure that when they did seize control, that they were recognized by other countries for the same reason. Uh, And this is why when groups seize power, one of the first things they seek is recognition by another. They want to know uh, that, for example, Northern Cyprus, which is only recognized by Turkey in one or two other countries, that's a, a deep frustration to them. Uh, whereas other countries, uh, Chechia recognized by all of the countries <laughs> of the world, uh, having come into being uh, more recently than uh, Northern Cyprus.
0: As you said there, we will these things into being. Fundamentally, their ideas that become conversations that then become what many people consider to be real things, but they're not real things,
1: are they? That They're ideas. And so I wonder... And there was a time, you know, when you think about it, uh, we, you know, my book on walking kind of adverts to this. We walked out of Africa in multiple waves, 130,000 to 80,000 years ago. There were no countries uh, <laughs> at all. There were watercourses that blocked our routes. There were seas, there were mountains, there were other things. There were no countries. Uh, countries did not exist. Uh, so these are something that we have brought into being over the last really three, four hundred years. Um, and you never know what might happen in three or four hundred years' time. But we we won't be around to <laughs> see the consequences. Yeah, you
0: say brought into being or, or seemingly brought into being, isn't it? because, because, because I mean, yeah. I wonder to what degree you agree with this because we are we see. The effects of tribalism, whether it be on a local level, you know, between two warring football teams through to between countries, between religions, all that kind of thing, if we stick to the sort of the country aspect of it, to me, it seems like if people paid a bit more of a attention or gave a bit more thought to the fact that fundamentally a country is an idea and a thought, and it should be taken seriously, but not literally. Then perhaps some of the kind of you know that defensiveness, oh, I need that need to be recognised by another as oh, we exist and we're real. Perhaps that would dissipate a little bit, and we could almost—and again, I'm being idealistic here—at some point in the future get back to that state that you talked about when we we're walking out of Africa, where we recognised the sameness of humanity rather than having these arbitrary distinctions. It's like the equator, isn't it? We think of the oh, the equator goes around the earth. Well, it doesn't really. It's just it's just a, an idea, a useful one, but not one to be taken literally. Perhaps we we would do well to consider a similar thing when it comes to nation.
1: Yeah, and and I I agree with you, and I, I think I I, I find uh, you know things like borders are, are very telling. Uh, you know, if we if if we talk about Brexit for a moment, which we might do in the in the course of the conversation, I think uh, Brexiters were very staggered to discover that borders actually have two sides. Um, uh, (laughs) They don't simply have one side and the people on the other side (laughs) might have a different point of view. Um, And of course, borders are not given in the world. Uh, And the example that I give in the book is, is one that always fascinates me, uh, which is uh, if you travel uh, from Dublin airport to the United States, you legally and de facto pass through the U S border in Dublin um the border control is there they have the customs and border patrol agents there um they process you there and you leave uh irish law irish jurisdiction once you get permission and you walk through that gate you are no longer under irish jurisdiction now of course we can decide that actually that's not true and we can arrest all the border agents and throw them out but the point is that the border is actually a movable feast, and and you see these wonderful pictures, um, you know, of uh, the border between Holland and uh, Belgium, uh, where you, they split a cafe in two, um, or or uh, there's a, a marvelous one of a of a library uh, in the U.S. where one piece of the library is in U.S. territory and the other piece is in Canada, and there's a mark down or a line down the middle and you're not supposed to cross over them. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, we, we, we have- yeah,
0: That shows how balmy it is, It really, doesn't it? And yeah. I really enjoyed this part of your book in particular, and, and I love that you draw attention to it. And, and I wonder, for people who have read it, who perhaps have really pondered the implications of what you're saying. We do get our knickers in a twist over an arbitrary idea that gets agreed on by a certain number of people, but there is no more than that. And I read this article. Obviously, there's a lot of, strife in the in the world at the moment about tribalistic behaviours and so people on let's say as you said there you know there are two sides to a border but people on one side perhaps when when there is tension find it hard to imagine or empathize with the suffering of people on the other side and that's such a sorry and sad state of affairs which comes back to my point about what you're pointing out which is that if people really took the time to recognize that these are just ideas and that surely treating people well and humanely is far more important than some idea that could be chopped and changed as evidenced by the fact that there have been 30 countries coming, pop into and out of existence since 1990, which is no time.
1: So I, I, again, idealistically, I think you're correct. Um, but I, I think we have to you know, think about where humans have come from and perhaps where we're going to. So, you know, why do people take these points of view? Um, well, we take them, I think, in part because of, of uh, literally how we think about the world. We have this kind of zero-sum thinking which says, well, if this territory is mine, it can't be yours. If that territory is yours, it can't be mine unless I seize it by force uh, or pay you and you give it to me. Uh, so we, we have this kind of uh, dividing line in our in our head, uh, and, I, and I think actually... It arises in part because we have brain systems that demand that we set boundaries to the world, that give us metrics for space, uh, that say, uh, that delimit where's safe, where is not safe, and all of those kinds of things. And I think what we see is this kind of outworking. Uh, of those kinds of more basic phenomena where we say, well, look, this is where the line is. There has to be a line. Maybe there doesn't have to be a line, but at the moment there is.
0: But there's nothing wrong with a line, right? As I said, it's, it's a useful construct. And when you support a football team or a rugby team, or whatever, that's an enjoyable experience. Well, my argument is not that there's anything wrong with the line, but that we take that line too seriously because you know it's an idea, no, nothing more than that. And you talk about these, let's say, mammalian... Brain impulses that we have for territory and whatever else, which obviously is common with you know the chimps and all that lot. But we are different, are we not? In that we have the ability for meta-awareness, metacognition. So you know these impulses can arise, but we are able to just stand back a little bit and sort of observe them, and we don't have to go along with them.
1: That's, I think, exactly the point. And that's of course Kahneman's System Two thinking. But it's hard to crank out the initial impulse to say, this is what it is, is much easier. It's a cognitive shortcut, you know, so, but we do have this capacity for deliberation. We do have this capacity to think about things in different ways. Uh, You know, and I I talk about things like deliberative assemblies and and, uh, all of those kinds of things. We do have that capacity and we can set up the rules for these in the ways that we please. You know, um, these, again, are they're human constructions. They're not something that, that are given to us from on high. And we can change how they work if we want. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to
0: 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 As you said, it's very hard to resist those impulses we have. But I think, you know, if more people took the time to draw attention to the abstract nature of these things, as you have written about so well, that would certainly help the cause a little bit. But yes, you do talk as well about how to move things forward. You talk about citizen assemblies, deep canvassing, the importance of rapport, all these things, which I also found fascinating because obviously, again, we're at a time where. People are very entrenched and that is in some cases having tragic consequences on a massive scale. But you do draw in these examples that it doesn't have to be like that. You know, we can use conversation, we can use memory in a more evolved, in a more cooperative way. So could you just yeah, talk a bit about how the hows and the whys and the what's?
1: Yeah. So I, I think one of the grace kind of important discoveries which has come from a variety of different angles over the last couple of years is this idea that changing people's minds uh, in in ways that you might not have thought possible is something that we can actually do so uh, I'll, I'll I'll give a couple of different examples one is the the idea of deep canvassing so the idea that uh, for example gays can be allowed uh, the same rights and privileges as everybody else uh, to get married. It's, it has been something that has been very controversial for reasons that, to be honest, have eluded me, but that's that's just me. But what is clear is that when you ask voters to vote on these matters, um, that if you send trained people out into the field who don't try and interrupt, don't try and talk over, but actually listen to what uh, people who might be opposed to these kinds of measures are trying to say, you actually have a chance of engaging in a meaningful conversation that will change voting behavior uh, and in the direction that you want it to, to go in. And this is very often because people have fears that are unexpressed. They may have misperceptions that may not be uh, totally on the money. There may be a whole lot of things that uh, that may be slightly misaligned and giving people the opportunity to be heard, to talk through uh, what it is that they think, uh, and to do that in a respectful fashion—one that's where the emotions t- is damped down and taken out of it—turns um, out to be a labour-intensive but very effective way of promoting uh, social change. And the citizens' assemblies is, is, is another very, very good example of that. Uh, we've been running them in this country now for. I guess, 10 years or so. And uh, again, as means for introducing social change, uh, they're very effective. And they do something which I think politicians undervalue and underweight. Who turns up in constituency clinics for a politician on a Saturday morning? The people who are most committed to their cause. So politicians are oversampling people who email them, who write to them, and who come in and shout at them. Uh, But what they don't sample is the kind of Uh, average voter, the one who's maybe not overly committed to a particular point of view. And the position of the average voter may actually be very different to the position of the person who comes in and shouts at the poll on a Saturday morning. So um, we've had two major constitutional changes in the last couple of years, one to do with with equal marriage and the other to do uh, with rights to uh, access to abortion. And uh, as it turned out, in both of those cases, the public were far ahead of uh, where the politicians thought they were. Uh, And both changes were voted through to the Constitution uh, by two-thirds of the electorate. Really substantial, uh, overwhelming numbers in favour of change. Um, But the polls wouldn't have realised that if they had just been listening to the campaigners against these things, who are the ones who are most committed to that that point of view. Um, But Citizens' Assemblies can work if they're set up with an appropriate chair if, uh, if the, the person who's running them is seen to be non-partisan, and there's a, an effort after consensus and truth finding. And that's really the key uh, kind of thing. They, they kind of take heat out of things uh, uh, in a way that standard debates on, on television or whatever uh, don't allow you to do. Um, so that's kind of the deep canvassing and citizens' assemblies assembly kind of thing. Now, think about what's at the core of these is language and conversation
0: yeah so i was just thinking as as i was listening to you okay what are the key aspects of deep canvassing of enabling people to change their mind and and it sounded from what you're saying is that not falling into that impulse to quickly be defensive to defend our our point of view our whether it be our, a conceptual idea of the country we're from the conceptual idea of the the team we support or the town we live through to the conceptual idea of who we are. It's standing back and being able to observe these impulses and really take the heat out of these conversations. So it's almost like a psychological jujitsu by not being defensive, not falling for the, for these impulses. So would you say that is, and what else would you say, the key elements if we are to get more benefit from these type of things going forward?
1: So the, I, I think there's two other interesting places that we, we can look at. One has been the development of, of methods for talking to people in in investigations to do with criminal matters. And this is the, the issue of rapport. Uh, but also in business matters, what's sometimes referred to as conversational receptiveness. Uh, and this is the uh, in both cases, what you're doing is engaging in a form of active listening where you're offering respect. You're coming to meet the person on their own terms. You're not trying to impose your terms upon them. They come to feel like you're really trying to understand uh, their point of view. And I think once you have that kind of ground uh, cut together, or or you've you've kind of come to a common place together. Agreeing on a vision for the future is much easier. Um, And uh, in the case of rapport, um, the... The elements of rapport are fairly straightforward. They're acknowledging the other person as a person, using their name, treating them with respect, not trying to uh, be dominant over them, but to let them hear they may might be shy, they might be diffident in some way. You know, there may be lots of things going on, but you're giving people that opportunity to do this. And it, 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 in a bizarre but brilliant example, it's been shown on uh, debates between editors on Wikipedia of all places that when... The elements of conversational receptiveness are displayed between the editors that they're much more likely to come to a consensus about what an appropriate edit uh to a wikipedia page should be and the core components of that come back to hearing truly what the other person uh, has to say and uh, there, i think it was seneca the philosopher first said that you've you've uh, two ears and one mouth. So you should listen twice as much as you speak. And uh, investigators that I know in in criminal uh, areas all say the same thing. Just give the other person the space. You don't need to push your agenda upon them. Just let them tell you their story. And you end up getting much more uh, from the person and you get a much more meaningful uh, conversation than you would otherwise have had. Uh, And doctors, of course, have known this forever with good bedside manners. Again, listening is just as important uh, as as talking.
0: And that listening, it, it's a demonstrating of your recognizing of someone else's humanity rather than that kind of othering of people that is commonplace in a lot of discourse and certainly tribal discourse at the moment. Is that a fair comment, would you say?
1: I, I think that's absolutely fair. and I, And I think you know, when you when you look at, I think Northern Ireland is a great example. When you look at the, the peace agreement in the, in the late 1990s, fundamentally, that was built around a process of dialogue and a willingness for people to enter into dialogue over uh, an extended period of time. And lots of the dialogue was dialogue at a distance. You know, you had intermediaries, you had lots of other things going on. Um, uh, but in the end, people have to talk. Um, And uh, you need to give people the space in order to talk, but you also have to give them the space to exercise imagination together about what the future can be. And that's what was attempted in Northern Ireland 25, 27 years ago, that uh, nobody could continue with the status quo. That was just not possible. Um, But nobody knew what the future should be. So how do you design that future? Well, you get people to sit down and talk together.
0: Yeah. Well, I put out a bite-sized episode recently with Carl Frampton, the former world champion boxer from Northern Ireland, and he grew up in a place where the troubles were prevalent. And I remember him telling me that as he was growing up, people would tell him stories that, you know, people who were from the opposite religion, let's say, or the, the other religion, they were uniformly bad. So he had a story, an idea, a narrative that was fed to him that he bought uncritically. And it was only when he started training in areas that he wouldn't previously have gone to. He started speaking to people and he saw through this othering that we do of people, which again, for me, comes back to what you said at the beginning or what you pointed to in this book, this this arbitrary and very vague distinctions that we put between people, but that ends up being so destructive. And Northern Ireland is an example where we can get above that. And there are obviously so many examples in the world right now where a lot more of that is needed.
1: Well, you have a great example in, in, in uh, Great Britain, shall we say, of, over the last number of years where you, you look at where people are most opposed to uh, immigration. That's It's in places where the least number of immigrants live. Uh, and in places where you have the most numbers of immigrants, places like London, uh, people are least opposed to it because contact with others uh, allows you to appreciate our common humanity. Uh, You're not able to engage in a a process of of, uh, dehumanization um, uh, and actually engaging in that kind of contact. And that was one of the big problems, I think, in Northern Ireland, that uh, you had a segregated education system uh, and you also have segregated places where people lived. So contact between communities, uh, especially in the kind of polarizing circumstances there, were really at a minimum. Uh, And I would think probably that process during the 1990s was the first time those communities at a leadership level ever made uh, contact with each other. Um, and of course, they did all recognize that the future had to be something different. Um, so I, I think Northern Ireland, despite its travails, offers a, a positive lesson for the future.
0: It does. Yeah. Now, conversation is the thread that links uh, everything that you write about. And you talk about conversation and, and memory, in like memory more specifically, although they're obviously uh, very tightly bound. Memory, as we get older, we tend to look back through rose-tinted spectacles and think, forget the bad stuff and think, oh, wasn't that a wonderful time? Even though um, experientially, oftentimes it wasn't. And then also about how, as we get older, our sense of self, so that narrative sense of self, me and my story, solidifies even as it's distorted by us, us getting our memory you know, our memory's all wrong, for example, by thinking that was a wonderful time, even though you may have been miserable, you know, during that period. So could you just quickly talk about uh, just briefly as well, Shane, because I think you know where I'm going with this, but I'd like you to just to talk about the phenomenon of looking back and thinking, wasn't that a wonderful time? But also this sense of yourself becoming more firmly entrenched, even though actually in reality it's not the case.
1: Yeah, so you, you've actually summarised it very well there. But it, just to, to, to fill in the gaps for for the listeners, um, how you know this is you you take repeated surveys of people over the course of a period of decade of, of a decade or more, and you you get a sample of what people it is are thinking at let's say the age of eight, the age of twelve, age of sixteen, age of twenty. And what's very important and salient to you when you're an eight year old, of course, is not going to be the same thing that's important and salient to you when you're 20. You kind of choose elements that are are much more important to you, not your first day at school, the kind of canonical example that people always reach to. But, you know, maybe a series of life experiences that uh, led you in a particular path, positive or negative, whatever, whatever it happens to be. And we tend to carry these through. Um, but we look back and we choose elements uh, that are kind of coherent with our present self. And we make the mistake of thinking that we're not going to change in the future. Um, so you, you, this is called a, the kind of end of end of history hypothesis is, is, is one name that's given to it. But basically, when you ask people how much they've changed in the past and they'll say, oh, lots, lots of things happened to me. And then you say, how much will you change in the future? People will say, oh, no. I am where I am. And actually, people will change because, of course, things happen to you in your life. You know, tragedies happen. You might win the lotto. You, you know, your spouse might die. Uh, you might lose your job. Shifts in outlook. Shifts in outlook. Yeah, all sorts of things happen to you over the course of, of, the, of the years. So you, you, you end up with this sense that your life story is really solid and unchanging. But actually, when we look back at what you're choosing from that, it turns out that, you know, it's much more of an a la carte menu than uh, you you, uh, think it will be for the past. And you underestimate how much things will change for you in the future. So we're, we're very, very bad at jumping forward a decade or two in our own imagination and imagining what we might be like. And we bring to it instead this solid sense of self in the present. And I suppose adaptively that's reasonable because uh, if people couldn't rely on you as you are at the moment, uh, <laughs> they can't do much with you. Um, they can't predict where they're going to be or whatever uh, whatever it will happen to be. But it means that when you look back, the what you're choosing to look back upon uh, may be very distorted in all sorts of ways. You leave certain things out and you amplify other things that you you think you care more about now.
0: So this is why I would argue, and I'm not expecting you to agree with me, that fundamentally we've made a a key error in that we over-identify with our narrative self, which, as you've just explained, is deeply misleading, and under-identify with our experiencing self, which doesn't change, which is fundamentally the same from moment to moment. And I think you know if if we realised perhaps that the narratives were a useful tool rather than who we were, I personally think we'd be would be better off. But we can come back to that. But I want to quickly, just to add on to what we just spoken about here, to give it a real life couple of examples. So point one would be the Brexit vote. And the Brexit vote, 2016, well, we know which way it went, 52-48. But the proportion of older people who voted to leave, which essentially was a, a look back to a bygone era in many ways. Let's get back to how things were. Versus young people who were like, no, we would like to stay and move forward. So there's that, and then also certain politicians, we don't even necessarily need to name them, but who who are very good at, at taking this propensity that we have to look back and think, oh, weren't times wonderful back then, even though they perhaps experientially weren't at the time, and capitalize on that. So could you just briefly give, you know, from the research you've done, what your take on on these two things would be?
1: Yeah so nostalgia of course is a, is a is a key component really of what you're talking about here it's this looking backwards and thinking about what has gone before and how wonderful uh so it's a, it tends to be a positively inflected emotion because what you're doing is mentally time traveling back to a particular time when things were better in some sense but things weren't better uh, you know, we didn't have good dentistry. Uh, people died of, of all sorts of preventable diseases. We smoked. We lived in, in cold houses. You know, there were lots and lots of things that, that were terrible uh, about the past. Um, and, uh, of course, people don't think about those because we selectively remember the good stuff, the exciting stuff, uh, and we discount the bad stuff. And we uh, And we can show this, again, by this Uh, sampling through time of what it is that people think in the moment and what they think when you go back and ask them years later what they think. And of course, what has happened is people are forgetting the bad stuff, by and large, um, and they're focusing on the the positive events of their lives. Now, in a sense, that's perfectly reasonable. But the problem is generalizing from that uh, to the population uh, as a whole, and in particular, generalizing from your experience of what it was like to be 20 In the 1950s, uh, here you are uh, in uh, the the 2000s, and uh, imagining that people who are 20 now are thinking the same thing. Of course, they're not. They're thinking entirely different things. Um, And I I, I sometimes wonder about countries and the issue of politics of of, uh, nostalgia. Uh, Like Trump made it a a a, real, you know, when he he chose the slogan, Make America Great Again, uh, he really. Touched on something really primal for the people who were attracted by his kind of line of thinking. That uh, this he he's speaking in restorative terms. He's he's speaking about something that was lost and that can be found again. And his language, I think, is is very remarkably different from the, the language that Ronald Reagan used. Was, uh, Reagan spoke about the future, about how america was this great shining city on a hill that it was morning in america all of that that kind of language uh in other words he was very future focused in his language he wasn't uh backward facing uh in his language um in the case of brexit i guess you know this, this is going to be endlessly litigated uh, within the uk uh for years i, I suppose you know from a, an irish point of view we thought this was a, not a, a very uh sensible uh, decision um uh, and I suppose maybe I should probably not say more than that. I, 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 I might say one thing from an Irish point of view, which might might be interesting as a contrast uh, with Britain, and it's this: that if you look at our political parties, we do not have a, 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 any party at the moment that is focused on a politics of nostalgia. Uh, because our past was pretty crappy in this country. You know, uh, we we for 50 or so years after independence um, had uh, high rates of unemployment. Uh, we had high rates of immigration and the country was was pretty poor. Uh, it's only in the last 30 or 40 years that that has changed and changed dramatically. Uh, so we have nobody saying, let's go back to the 1950s, because that was catastrophically awful. Um, you know, there the, the were jokes about, well, the last person to leave the country turned the lights out and <laughs> things like that. So, you know, countries differ in their experiences, I think, where nostalgia is concerned because they they uh, have these different pasts. I think the French, uh, you know, part of French political discourse is, is around the trump glories. The, the 30 uh, miracle years after the Second World War uh, where they had enormous rates of growth and all of the rest of it. Um, countries that missed out on that don't have that <laughs> way of looking looking at the world.
0: That's really interesting, yes. So without necessarily overemphasizing the point, yes, be slightly wary of people who use nostalgia as a political persuasion tool seems to be something valuable to take
1: yeah. I, I, and, you know, again, I, I, this is something uh, Anderson in his book and I do, and I, I think about in my book. What they're doing is is selecting elements of the past uh, to tell a coherent story about the state of the nation in the present. And they typically identify an outsider or an outside group uh, that can be blamed for what's gone wrong. And they will point to uh, perhaps an enemy within. Um, and that, that kind of language is, is language that comes easily to certain types of politicians, I think that the job of the rest of us is not to fall for it.
0: Yeah. So using nostalgia, in some ways it's the opposite of deep canvassing, isn't it? it it's it's othering as opposed to recognising your shared humanity. Recognising the shared humanity, the, the sameness of, of everyone, that's the way forward as opposed to anything that others people, then that's somewhat problematic. Right, Shane, I want to finish uh, with something you touched on in the book it was only a, a passing line or two about the hard problem of consciousness it almost sneaked under the radar but I was I was alert to it I actually think this is one of the most interesting if not the most interesting subject for me personally at least now correct me if I'm wrong because you're the neuroscientist right but so let me try and explain this as far as I understand it so the hard problem of consciousness suggests that or and it was David Chalmers I think the guy who who, who coined the phrase yeah basically they're And hard is an understatement, hard problem. It's more like the impossible problem. So what he suggested is that there is no way, even in principle, that uh, scientists can come up with an idea as to how the brain creates conscious experiences. By conscious experiences, I mean the taste of tea, the feeling of love, all those kinds of things. Now, we know obviously the brain correlates with experience, Henry's example of having been mildly lobotomized um, points to that fact. Where are you with the hard problem of consciousness as a neuroscientist? Because fundamentally, let me just add a quick because, because fundamentally, I don't think people realize that, that this is a thing because our model of reality, let's say, materialism, physicalism, is based on the idea that the brain creates conscious experiences. And at this point in time, that is no more than a belief. And scientists will always say, you know, religious belief, you, you need to, yeah, where's the evidence? Well, the same should be used, I would suggest, it in terms of the hard problem of consciousness. So I just wanted to throw the, throw the conversation ball over to you at that point.
1: Yeah, so uh, consciousness as a topic is one that I've tended to avoid <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. Uh, you know, you, you have issues to do with definitions. Uh, you have issues to do with... Uh, the nature of my experience versus the nature of your experience uh, and those kinds of things. So can
0: I just quickly, Shane, let me just quickly come in. because I think it's valuable to have a bit of a, can I just propose one for the sake of this conversation, right? The simple fact of being aware, not what I'm aware of, not that I'm aware of whatever thoughts I happen to have or sounds or perceptions, the fact that I am aware, nothing more than that. If we use that as a definition, because even that they don't know how it comes from the brains anyway sorry i just thought i'd add that in i thought that might be useful
1: yeah so yeah i I have a flippant remark that i always make to my students about consciousness that it's actually really simple uh it's so simple that we can't spot it and the end they always wonder why i say that and i say it's because evolution has selected us to turn it off every night for eight hours and turn it back on again the next morning um so it, it can't be that difficult and it does it in whales it does it in ants. It does it in, in uh, uh, all of the known species. We all sleep. We all go into the state where we are somnolent, where we, we are behaviorally quiescent, and we're not actively experiencing the the, uh, the outside world, the world beyond the skull. So that, that's kind of my, my flippant remark.
0: So I just want to add something on that. You say consciousness disappears for eight hours every night, but are we not aware of our dreams at night?
1: Um, not all night by any means.
0: (laughs) So we are aware of our dream during REM sleep, let's say. But when we're in deep sleep, okay, there'll be periods where perhaps we aren't dreaming. That doesn't mean we're not aware. It just means perhaps it could also mean that there's nothing to be aware of. Because if an alarm goes off during that deep sleep, we'll still be awake. So there must be some awareness there.
1: Yeah, no, that's possible. And I think the contrasting state to think about is when you're under general anesthesia, uh when you're under states of partial anesthesia, when you're in states of uh which are vegetative uh in various degrees, uh um and you know when you, you, you try and do the difficult job and it is a difficult job of, of comparing what's happening in the heads of people uh uh in those differing states, um what you tend to see is is uh, this idea that you need activity in the posterior regions of, of the brain, in the brainstem and uh, in these sensory regions, or the person has uh, an impairment of consciousness, which is goes from low to total, uh, so that you, you must have those as minimal uh, kinds of conditions. Now, getting beyond that to the hard problem is really, I, I think, somewhere that I don't think we have a good sense of yet. Uh, we can build... Uh, and this has happened. Uh, you can build things called cerebral organoids, uh, which are kind of little brains in a dish. Uh, these spontaneously organise themselves. They spontaneously start to generate electrical activity. They they do an all a whole variety of weird kind of things, which possibly even might have ethical implications uh, in in some shape or form. Um, and I, I tend to run out of words at kind of this point because. Uh, uh clearly consciousness is important in some way it must be evolution selected for it people who say that it's an epiphenomenon have to explain why it is uh that evolution has selected for it in the way that it has why it's so carefully regulated by circadian rhythm um how it can be modulated so easily by drugs and a whole variety of 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 other things and we know it must have something to do with the brain because uh if we damage your brain in particular ways we can damage your experience of the world in a variety of ways we can we can make a hole in the world that you experience for example uh if we give you a visual scotoma so uh your visual field will look normal except for this hole that's in the middle of it uh so and that can get filled in over time because your brain learns to fill in statistical regularities. So the, there's a whole lot of things like this. Do I, do I think my glass of water is conscious? No, I don't. Do I think you are? I think to the extent that we can engage in kind of shared realities together, uh, which is an, another major topic of the book. Yes, I do. Um, do I, do I think, uh, you know, uh, it's a, tends to be a property of, of, of living things, Motile things, not sessile things i don't think trees are are conscious um i i i think a a bunch of f- slightly confused uh thoughts like that but I, I i think trying to find demarcations is is really hard uh, you know i uh, there's a, a famous paper from i think, guess it must be forty years ago now called what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain and uh you know, you can cro- uncross the wiring of of uh, the frog's brain when it's uh, in embryo, and suddenly its perception of the world <laughs> is reversed. Uh, so, what the frog's eye is telling the frog's brain is that the fly is here, and you must flick your tongue here to get the fly. But if you uncross the visual system, the fly is here, and it flicks its tongue there. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we could. There are all these amazing tricks that we we can do. Uh, so the the fly's eye is telling it something and the frog's brain is behaving in a, in a particular way. Uh, and we know in the case of rats and mice, we can implant memories uh, using optogenetic techniques. You know, so there's all, you know, so they've never experienced uh, an association between a color and, a, and a, a piece of food, but we can implant that memory and then they'll go for the, or the smell and the food or whatever it happens to be. So uh, mechanistically, it must have something to do with the brain. But I don't think we're anywhere close to understanding the, the detail of that yet.
0: Shane, I think that's all, all very interesting stuff. I just want to come back at a couple of points. Um, so you, you talk about, for example, you know, we can change our experience through, you know, let's say, having some alcohol. We know that our experience changes. But again, that sort of comes back to definition because whilst at what we experience changes, or let's say the way the faculties of the mind, the human mind changes, Again, that simple fact of being aware doesn't change. And that simple fact of being aware... Oh, it does. It does.
1: Your awareness of the world is blunted under alcohol. <laughs> and, in a, and in a dose-dependent fashion, you know, from from uh, having it uh, being something that greases the wheels to something that uh, can render you dead.
0: Uh... You're talking about the content of the experience, aren't you? So the content, you know, your thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, all those things. Not the simple awareness that knows it
1: um yeah i don't know how you'd get at that distinction in terms of of uh any experiment that's that's my problem uh
0: <laughs> but then but then but you talk about experiments sorry shane but you talk about experiment but there's no experiment that shows that the brain creates consciousness now we know there's correlation but there is no experiment that shows causation
1: not yet no, no, not yet. And, th- and this is why I make this point about when you, you do these uh, brain imaging studies of, of people who are in various states of, of uh, 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 who've undergone varying types of brain damage, uh, what we see is the impairments of consciousness arise principally in people who've undergone posterior damage, uh, damage to the brain stem. They tend not to happen to people who've gone, undergone frontal uh, damage. Uh, in fact, you can lose a vast quantity of your brain without it making much difference to, to your ability to be conscious at the anterior end. You can't do that at the posterior end. It will kill you. Um, uh, so to my mind, there, at least we know we've got a, a, a brainstem coupled with posterior brain region involvement. Uh, now, how those systems are put together I have no idea uh, in terms of how it will generate consciousness. But if I was going to start looking uh, to try and figure out that mechanism, I I might have a hypothesis that says something like um, ascending uh, fibers in terms of of arousal have a key uh, component to play with this, but they must intersect with uh, sensory uh, inputs from other areas if, if the one is missing or the other is missing well then you don't get uh, you don't get consciousness arising like at, at least that's a kind of a vague hypothesis
0: uh, <laughs> yeah i like it i like it you mentioned evolution earlier well as far as i understand it according to evolutionary game theory which is evolution by natural selection turned into equations the chances that we see reality as they are are zero you can't see or experience your brain But I could cut your head open and experience your brain, right? So it could be that we see brains from an objective second person point of view, and they look in that certain way. But from a first person point of view, we experience brains as thoughts, feelings, memories, perceptions, that kind of thing.
1: I guess the problem there is that uh, we don't have a feedback mechanism, and we're smart enough to, to build one. You know, so I I can attach my brain uh, to an EEG system, and I can see, uh, I can look for the predominance of alpha waves, uh, and then I can say, well, how do I generate alpha waves? Well, I might discover that actually, if I slow my breathing down, I start to see a, a change in synchrony. Uh, you know, there I, I think that's you can see what's going on in my head because you're not looking at your own head and I can do the same for you, but I can do the same for myself. If I build an appropriate microscope (laughs) that allows me uh, to do that.
0: But then that, that comes back though, to then, you know, taking it um, seriously, but not necessarily literally. But anyway, listen, I just thought I'd throw that out there because I, I, I like, you know, Max Planck, who the most famous physicist of the 20th century, he said he views consciousness as, as fundamental and, um, you know, you can't get behind consciousness and everything emerges from that. Now, I, that certainly I've completely put all my hands up and acknowledge that is far from a mainstream view of things. However, just to tie it back in with everything we've been speaking about, if that was true, if that was true, then that would suggest that fundamentally at a core level, you know, if I hurt someone else, I hurt myself. And so if it ever came to a point that there was an understanding that you know, consciousness was primary, then all going along with that would be the understanding that if I hurt someone else, I hurt myself. And therefore, you know, we might see a, a, a wholesale change in the way humanity treats each other and the planet.
1: Well, th- that would be nice and that would be great. But uh, let me ask you a question, uh, which uh, is, is a slightly morbid one. Uh, what happens to your consciousness when you die?
0: So I would say that if consciousness is primary, it's not my consciousness it's consciousness being filtered through. So the, there are two uh, analogies. I, well, I always get analogy and metaphor mix. Analogies I quite like. One is the dream analogy. So when you dream at night, you you know, you know always experience a dream from a position, a localized position within the dream. And then I might be dreaming about this conversation. So then it'd be Shane there. And I would imagine you know, you're your room with all your books behind you, so that would be the world. But then you wake up and you realize, I wasn't the subject, the object, or the world. I was the whole thing. So I would say, according to this, if you scale that up, there is just consciousness and experiencing itself through the avatar of Simon and Shane. Now, I know, for example, that Carl Sagan was the guy who inspired you in the initial place to get into... And neuroscience. I, I remember listening to you say that somewhere. And Carl, one of Carl Sagan's famous quotes, I think, is that uh, we are the un- universe experiencing itself, which would be which would be that. And then the other quick analogy I'd use would be the desktop interface. It's like it seems like there's a, a word document and a bin on the computer, but they're just representations of a much deeper process, and they're not actually fundamentally separate. So that would be my answer. I would say it's not my consciousness, it's consciousness experiencing me and experiencing you, which obviously is a, a different premise altogether.
1: Yeah, so I I I again I I would wonder how I would test that idea empirically and I I don't know. Um and I I guess an alternate uh Occam's razor view is that uh um, consciousness arises out of particular organizations of matter. But we don't know that, do we? No, no, we don't. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm just saying as uh, when we can't propose different hypotheses and uh, regrettably when we uh, leave this mortal coil, uh, that's it, the candle's gone out.
0: Well, it was certainly the body's gone and all that stuff. Absolutely. We don't know. I find this such an interesting conversation. And obviously it's one that cannot be proved the other one way or the other. All I would say is that everyone or the vast majority of people adhere to the materialist paradigm without realizing that the hard problem of consciousness is a thing. And the, the idea that the brain creates consciousness is nothing more at this stage than a belief. That's all I'm pointing at.
1: It's a hypothesis that people are trying to test. But but most people have it as a belief, no? Oh, people have it as a, as a belief. But if you pull your average neuroscientist out who works on these topics, they're they're they are competing hard with each other about uh, how to test these ideas.
0: Absolutely, but but you know, neuroscientists are the top echelon, which is why I so enjoy talking to you, Shane. But the average man on or woman in the street would have no idea. They just assume it's an absolute given and think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll see anyway. But. Listen, Shane, I really appreciate your time. And I think what you wrote about in Talking Heads, in terms of nations, in terms of nostalgia, I think they're so valuable at this time when you actually think them through and relate them to what's going on in the world. So I just want to doff my cap to you once again, and I look forward to your next one. Is it going to rhyme, walking, talking, something else?
1: No, it's not. It's it's <laughs> it's, it's it's going to be quite different, but it's going to pick up actually on, on some of the themes here. About how we construct realities together. Uh, so I'm gonna. I'm, oh, okay. So you're 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 already hard at work, are you? I'm thinking very hard. I've written uh, already the uh, the the spec for it. So uh, my agent is considering it as we speak.
0: <laughs> well, well, he'd be a fool not to go with it. Shane, you're a prolific writer and an excellent one too, and a, a, a fantastic conversationist. It's always a pleasure. So listen, thank you very much indeed, and for uh, humouring my. Uh, should we say out there ideas at the same time? So it's, it's been a real joy. Thank you, Shane.
1: Thank you so much, Simon. That was great.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com, or at Simon Mundy on social media. And if you found the conversational bits that we had around the hard problem of consciousness, you must check out my YouTube channel where we have loads of videos exploring consciousness, non-duality, as well as the nature of reality. I'll link to it all in the show notes.